Book of Judges is where we are this morning. Judges chapter 11, to be exact. And uh, we're going to continue on in the series that we're in for uh, about five weeks now. And um, we're, uh, we're kind of just doing some uh, snapshots throughout this book and um, focusing in on some of the key stories of the key people that are told in the book of Judges. And so um, hopefully by now you're somewhat familiar with kind of the pattern or the cycle that this, this book tells, but it looks kind of like this. Uh, essentially, over and over again, you see this thing happening where Israel, God's people, turn away from God to idols. And then God hands Israel over to their oppressors. And then Israel suffers under foreign domination. And then God raises up a judge to deliver or to rescue Israel. But then, once again, Israel turns away from God to idols. And so, multiple times within the story in the book of Judges, you see this cycle happening. And uh, it's this kind of picture that you can almost pick up the fatigue of the writer as he's just going, and then you're never going to believe what happens next. You're never going to believe what Israel did this time, how they forgot, how they neglected, how they turned from God towards idols. But then you also kind of have this growing picture of, and God was continually faithful. God was persistent. God continued to pursue and to provide for his people over and over. And so while you have this really not just cyclical, but this kind of downward spiraling movement among God's people, you have emerging this even more beautiful, faithful um, loving and gracious picture of God that's presented over and over again. So kind of each week during this series, we're looking at one snapshot of how this cycle plays out, um, primarily by looking at the specific judge that that narrative uh, rolls around. And um, Ken's tackling some of the more well-known judges, uh, Gideon and Samson and Deborah and... Uh, people like that, and I'm picking up some of the scraps. And so today, we're going to talk about Jephthah, who uh, most of us probably don't even remember that story. And so it's kind of a fun one um, to look at. And so um, before we dive in, I just kind of want to clarify something real quickly. And it's important to remember that as one of my professors in seminary used to constantly say, that the Bible is an ungodly book, right? Which sounds like a weird thing to say in church. But if you understand that the way that the, the Bible uh, is meant to be read, you have these first two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, that talk about God creating the world and um, designing it for humans to live in harmony and peace and shalom with him and with each other and with themselves and the rest of creation. And it's, the world, it's a picture of God's kingdom on earth or heaven on earth, the way things are supposed to be. But then in Genesis chapter 3, everything falls apart, right? And then if you flip to the very end of your Bible, the very last two chapters, Genesis 21 and 22, we kind of come back to the beginning. There's this picture of restoration or the reconciliation of all things where God once again brings heaven and the fullness of his kingdom to earth. And there's a new heavens, new earth. Everything is made new. And once again, God is on the throne in the world as, as it ought to be. And so you have four chapters in the entire Bible that are godly, so to speak. 
that describe the way things are supposed to be on earth. But from Genesis 3 to Revelation 19, you have this picture of, of a broken world, of a messed up world, a world that's dominated by sin and death and evil and decay. And so that's what I mean when I say the Bible's an ungodly book that really the 1,100-something chapters that make up the bulk of the narrative uh, describe, in, in, to a certain extent, how things aren't supposed to be. Now, the good news for us is that this is the world we live in. This is where we are in the story, which means that this book is continually going to be relevant and redemptive and even prophetic into our life and the world that we live in because we live in a quote-unquote ungodly world as well, right? And so the reason that's important when we come to a place like Judges is that there's a whole thing, a whole bunch of things that go down in the narrative of Scripture that God is totally against, right? There's all kinds of messed up stories of evil and oppression and sin and wickedness. And oftentimes, people who either aren't familiar with the Bible or skeptics that would want to take a shot at Christianity would say, all you have to do is open up to parts of the Old Testament and you'll see that the Bible or Christianity promotes violence. It promotes things like genocide. It promotes things like slavery or immorality. Maybe it promotes things like having multiple wives or something like that. And um, for us, if we're going to take this book seriously, that means that we read it literately, right? We understand that as these stories unfold, simply because these things are happening doesn't necessarily mean that God endorses them. Or in other words, just because it happens in the Bible doesn't mean it's biblical as an authoritative teaching on ethic or life for us. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in the Bible that gives us a picture of just how ungodly the world is. Meaning when God isn't on the throne and the fullness of his kingdom hasn't yet come to earth, then yeah, things are going to be broken and humans are going to do violence and act horribly towards God and themselves and one another in creation. And so the book of Judges is full of all kinds of messed up stories, right? And if you're going to read through it, you're going to go, man, that doesn't seem very good, and you would be correct. It's very bad. And the fact that it's included in the Bible is there intentionally to show us this, what's, it, this is what happens when we boot God from the throne and decide to be the ruler of our own universe, right? And so, um, inevitably, we're going to see these glimpses of how evil and godly, godlessness lead to suffering and misery. And so the whole point of these long chunks of messy Old Testament narrative is to make us thirsty, to put a longing in us for, for the real thing, for a true king, for, um, for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And so just keep that in mind as we come into this uh, passage today. So like I said, we're going to be looking at this judge by the name of Jephthah. And as you hopefully know by now, when we say judge, we don't mean dude sitting with a black robe with a gavel behind the desk um, or the podium, but it's really just this idea of a military and political leader. And Israel is constantly throughout this cycle trying to find the next one. Who's going to be our savior? Who's going to lead us? 
out of oppression, who's going to be our deliverer? And judge after judge after judge fails, but they kind of keep looking for the next one. And so this is the story in Judges 11 of, of this story, Jephthah, or this Judge Jephthah, and uh, the hope that he was going to be the one that de- would deliver Israel once and for all. And so let's start with his backstory, starting in verse 1 of Judges chapter 11. <clears throat> Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him, okay? So that's a little childhood background on this guy, right? We don't know much. We know his mom's a prostitute, his family hates him, and he basically doesn't belong anywhere. And so his entire childhood, his entire upbringing, he's kind of this this reject, right? Somebody who's been rejected not just by his family, but by the greater society. He has nothing to look forward to, no inheritance, no family name to carry. So he flees out into the wilderness and becomes this like mobster, right? This gang of scoundrels gathered around him and uh, makes a life for himself kind of in the seedy underbelly of ancient Israel. Verse four, sometimes later, sometime later, When the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, and be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. So they tried all the kind of upscale, like, pedigreed judges they could think of, the one with Harvard MBAs and Rhodes Scholarships and all this kind of stuff under their belt. None of that's working, so they turned to the dark side. Maybe this thug, maybe this outcast, This gangster is the kind of grit that we need in our leadership. In verse 7, Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? And the elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them, and he repeated his words before the Lord in Mizpah. And so again, this guy who's his entire life, he's been an outcast. He's been a reject. And so therefore has kind of withdrawn from society and uh, lived the life of, of probably of violence and of crime and of deceit. But finally now has this moment to rise to a place of prominence within dominant society. And he, he's obviously skeptical. He obviously knows that they're just trying to use him. And so he pushes back a little, but eventually he goes, well, that sounds amazing. I would love to be the head over Israel and to be this kind of glorious commander over the state. And so he agrees to this and says, just to make sure, if I am able to defeat the Ammonites in battle, I will be your leader. And they say, it is as you say. And so there's essentially this uh, deeply covenantal kind of talk that's happening here. 
that this is going to happen. This is the real deal, and we swear on the name of Yahweh, swear in the name of the Lord. And so that's how Jephthah becomes the next judge or leader over Israel. Um, His first kind of, the rest of this chapter, kind of, he does some attempts at diplomacy. He does some correspondence with the king of the Ammonites. He doesn't get really far. And so now, finally, the time has come to go to battle. And so we'll pick up the story in verse 29 of chapter 11. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. Okay, so he's getting ready to lead the people into battle. And the spirit of the Lord, we're told in verse 29, comes upon Jephthah. Which means God's personal presence is now empowering this human leader. That God is blessing this guy's life and his work. That he is with him. And all the strength and the power of the multitude of the heavenlies are now at the disposal of this judge. Which would be all the confidence in the world you should need to head into any battle or whatever lies before you. But it's not good enough for Jephthah. Instead, he makes this promise or this vow to God. Now notice it doesn't say with God, but to God. He goes, just for a little bit of extra luck, for a little bit of an extra guarantee that this is going to go well for me, here's what I'm going to do, God. If you give me the power to defeat the Ammonites, when I come back to my house, the very first thing that comes out my front door to greet me, I'm going to offer that whatever or whoever it is, as a burnt offering and a sacrifice to you. Now, God doesn't really reply, but the battle ends up going well, and uh, they, feed, they defeat the Ammonites. Okay? So this great, great celebration within the land. All of Gilead, all the Israelites living in that region, finally, once again, have victory. They've driven out these, uh, these oppressors, and... Uh, and they're celebrating, right? There's music, there's dancing, there's this huge parade coming into town, and, and Jephthah, the commander, is kind of this honored guest at the head of it all. But now he's coming down the driveway to his home and remembering that whatever comes out of the front door was, was going to be a sacrifice that he would make to the Lord. So here's what happens. Verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord. 
that I cannot break. Okay? And so we don't know what he was expecting to come out of his front door. It could have been an animal of some kind, a sheep or a goat, that, <clears throat> that he was prepared to sacrifice. Or maybe he thought it would be one of the servants that lived within his estate. But clearly, the fact that it's his daughter that comes out to greet him. We don't know how old, but joyfully singing, dancing, celebrating, welcoming her dad home is not really what he had in mind. And so now he's at this place where he's like, well, I've made this vow to God that I would sacrifice whatever comes out my door. But obviously, he doesn't want to sacrifice his daughter. In verse 36, she, said, she replied, my father, you have given your word to the Lord and do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites, but grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she could never marry. And after the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he vowed. And she was a virgin. And from this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gilead. Gilead. Um, that's a messed up story. Would you agree with me? <laughs> um, yeah, that seems bad. And... This is why it's so important for us to remember the ungodliness of the Bible, right? And I've actually heard and read commentators and preachers hold up Jephthah as this hero of the faith, right? That he makes this vow to the God and he is so devout and so faithful to Yahweh that he actually goes through with offering his daughter as a burnt sacrifice. And what an amazing man of faith that we should all strive to be like him. Right? Um, and the reason we tend to jump to those conclusions sometimes as evangelicals is because we, we, we kind of miss this whole dynamic that what's happening in the scripture, the ungodliness of the book. But to me, it's incredibly clear and that the first readers, as well as those of us who are reading today, aren't meant to hold up this story as an example to follow. The whole point of this story is to show us how, fall, how far Israel had fallen. This is how bad things have actually gotten. That their ruler is actually willing to make a human sacrifice of his own daughter in order to gain a military victory. That's how bad things are. That's how far Israel has fallen from God. Throughout the scriptures, God has commanded his people to, to not participate in human sacrifice or child sacrifice, which was incredibly common amongst many of the other nations around them. God has commanded his people not to murder. But this judge shows up straight out of living the thug life in the hills 
and is maybe this competent military commander, but he's absolutely clueless about the character of Israel's God. And so he actually goes to the point where he is doing something that God abhors in hopes of gaining God's favor and blessing. Going around doing things in the name of Yahweh that Yahweh had explicitly forbade his people from doing. That's how bad things are for Israel. They no longer know the character of their own God. And so they cluelessly attempt to gain God's favor favor, by doing the things that he opposes. Now what's somewhat ironic, I guess, is that the Ammonites were famous for offering child sacrifices to their gods. And so in this battle for the land, whatever else was going on, it seems that Jephthah took what he had picked up from the Ammonites and had used that to build a caricature of Yahweh that was more palatable in the world that he lived in. That's how bad things had gotten for Israel. Now here's what's so interesting. Um, This cycle repeats throughout Judges, and it gets worse and worse, and even over the next two weeks, it's going to get even worse, right? But it's not that far removed from our world, is it? That we also have this temptation or this tendency in front of us to worship a caricature of God rather than the real true God that has revealed himself to us in Christ. And we pick up these caricatures all over the place, oftentimes from within our own spiritual upbringing. But even beyond that, just like Jephthah, we are so immersed within an ungodly world that we often take some of those worldviews or even ways of worshiping, if you will, meaning looking for identity, looking for worth, looking for hope and life and answers and meaning. And we end up with this really nasty blend and concoction of something that on one hand resembles Christianity, but on the other hand is completely polluted and distorted. There's a million different ways that happens. So for example, I would start by arguing that any time violence is done in the name of of advancing the kingdom of God, that we're falling into this same pattern, right? And it's been done throughout history. And we have to be honest about those places in our story as Christians, as Americans, that this cycle somehow invites us into it as well. But it really shows up in more subtle and nuanced ways. That they had these pagan religions all around them of the Ammonites and the Amorites and and Amalekites and all these surrounding nations that had their own gods, their own teachings about ultimate reality and their own ways of worshiping. And Israel's continual cyclical sin was to, to try to mix in 
the worship of these pagan gods with their faithfulness to Yahweh. And every time it leads to destruction. And so one way we could think about it is within the world that we're living in today, specifically in the States, you have this increasing polarization in worldviews, don't you? Right? And it's, it's more than simply Republican or Democrat or conservative and liberal. But beneath all that kind of politics of it, there's actually worldview kind of stuff, what we believe to be ultimately true and good. And so on one side, you have essentially this worldview and value system around nationalism, where the most important thing is to protect ourselves and our people. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have this worldview and value system of globalism that's set out to build a world where everything is, is good for everyone. So in nationalism, it's really us versus them. And in globalism, there's this kind of broadened, broadened understanding of who us is. In nationalism, this ultimate value is of freedom. Let us do what we want to do to take care of ourselves and live the life we want to live. And in globalism, there's this value of equality. To level the playing field so that everybody has an equal shot at everything. You start to see how these two, these two worldviews quickly begin to shape the way that we interact in society with each other, with ourselves, the way we think about what's happening in the world. And very quickly, what we see beginning to happen with Christianity is that it begins to latch on to one or the other. And not just latch on, but begins to infuse and mix up and take on some of the characteristics and the values and ultimately do, so, do it so much that it's within, when you're in that space, it's indistinguishable what's, what's the Christian faith and what's one of these other two worldviews. So the downfall would be that in a nationalistic Christianity, soil and flag become sacramental. And instead of our primary allegiance being to a king and a kingdom, we instead bow down to a plot of land. But within globalism, there's this futile effort to advance the kingdom of God on earth, but to leave the king behind. To pursue utopia and peace and equality for everyone, which of course are good things. But to not allow Jesus to be the king of his own kingdom. I'm not on Facebook because of this, right? Some of you know what I mean. And it's so crazy that somehow these two groups are, that they've so much combined faith with either a globalistic or a nationalistic perspective, they can't tell the difference and they can't understand one another at all. And my conviction is that 
as the people of God, as the church of Jesus, we're called to a radical third way, right? We're called to live in the tension, if you will. That our primary identity and our value system and our ethics and what we believe in the way that we live together doesn't, isn't primarily shaped by either of these two worldviews or any of the other ones that would come our way. But that our identity would be first and foremost and exclusively as the people of God. Those bought and redeemed by the blood of Christ. Those living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven here on earth now. And it's an incredibly difficult tension to walk. And we're constantly going to be pulled one way or the other. But this is the space that we're called to occupy. And this was Israel's sin over and over and over again. That they were pulled by these values and worldviews and systems all around them because it was more convenient and it was more palatable. And to a certain degree, maybe even with the hopes of knowing that their mission was to be a blessing to the nations. And so maybe if we can assimilate into those nations and adopt their worldviews and practices of worship, maybe we can even begin to expand the territory of God's kingdom. But the cycle continues. They end up being influenced by the surrounding nations more than influencing them. And they neglect the name of Yahweh and neglect to be faithful to him. And so the truth is, nationalism, globalism, whatever other isms that you would want to use to describe what's happening in the culture and the world that we live in today, all of them are based upon the recognition that something's wrong with the world, that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And we need to figure out how to move forward, how to save ourselves, if you will. And they offer two radically different solutions forward, but they start with a, truth, a truthful foundation that there is something wrong in the world, that we do need something or someone to save us. Who or what are we going to look to? What political party or worldview or system or culture or subculture are we going to identify with to try to find the thing that our souls long for and that the world needs? And so humans are constantly finding all kinds of ways, all kinds of saviors, all kinds of false gods to look to to give us hope, to give us security. And it could be in the, in the politics and stuff like that, or in a place like Bend, it could be this, this artism is individualism, isn't it? That we've escaped the traffic, we've escaped the rat race, we've escaped the busyness of the big city or whatever it is, and we're here, we've made it where life is safe and comfortable and easy. Obviously, it's a caricature, but there is something to it of like we want to come here to live the life that we want to live and enjoy the mountains and the rivers and the trails and all that kind of stuff. 
And we would never name that as our religion or any of those objects within the environment as objects of our worship. But you can see that it's just one of millions of ways that we begin to place our hope um, in all these other things other than God himself. So Andy Crouch, who's a... um, a theologian, philosopher, believer who's written a lot on what's happening within the world, within the culture we live in, talks a lot about this idea that there are millions of false gods from globalism to nationalism to individualism that we can put our faith in. And every single one of those gods will gladly demand our entire life. But beyond that, they will also demand that we sacrifice our children for them. That is the nature of idolatry. That we invest so heavenly, heavily in a particular worldview or lifestyle or value set or dream of progress that all of our life is laid down as a sacrifice, including our kids. As parents, it's worth paying attention to. So that's the bad news. And if you're a little bit depressed and a little bit frustrated, then you're reading Judges right. Okay. The good news is that, again, what passages like this are designed to do in the big picture, in the meta-narrative, is to make us thirsty and to give us a longing for the true God, for the true Savior, for the one that not only can heal our hearts and fulfill our deepest longings, but the one who will actually be the king of the world and make everything right again. And so this whole story points us to Jesus, doesn't it? And we have even more information than ancient Israel did when it comes to figuring out what is our God like? Because they had revelation to a certain extent. God had revealed something of his character and nature to them through creation and through the law and through the prophets and other ways. But in our days, as the beginning of Hebrews says, God has given us this ultimate and beautiful and complete and final word that he's revealed us himself to us through Jesus. And so this is the grid that I recommend reading all scripture through. When you're trying to figure out what's happening in the scriptures as it relates to what God is like, what is the character of this God that the scriptures point to, for us, on, at this point in the story, we start with Jesus. Whatever else we may be tempted to believe about God, whatever else even some of the clues would indicate God is like, we start with the idea that we have a Christ-like God. God is like Jesus. And so we look to him so that we don't continually fall into this same trap of ignorance and unfaithfulness to the character of God. We have been given this incredible gift, the person of Jesus, God 
in the flesh. And if we want to know what the God of the Bible is really like, we simply look to his son. And when we look to his son, what do we see? Do we see a violent God who's killing people and demanding sacrifice? Demanding that we offer our kids to him? We actually see the complete opposite, don't we? We see a forgiving God who absorbs sin and offers his son as a sacrifice. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie 300. I'm a Christian, so I haven't seen it, but some of you maybe have. And um, there's this incredible battle scene that's very Book of Judges-ish between King Xerxes and King Leonidas. And they're kind of having this showdown at the beginning of the battle. And Xerxes says to Leonidas, imagine what horrible fate awaits my enemies when I would gladly kill any of my own men for victory. And Leonidas says, and I would gladly die for any of mine. So you can serve any king you want to with your life. You can ascribe to to any ism out there. You can look to any lifestyle, any religion, any philosophy, any savior, and any of them will gladly kill you and demand the lives of your kids. They don't care about you. Money doesn't care about you. Success doesn't care about you. Health doesn't care about you. Neither do globalism or nationalism. All of that stuff will gladly take your whole life. But in Jesus, we have the one true king who was killed for us. Who gave his life for us. And reveals a father of mercy, of grace, of compassion and kindness. Who offers his own son and invites us into his family to celebrate with him. And so at this table, we take the bread and we take the cup. But more than that, we are receiving Jesus again. Communing with a God who gives himself to us in his son and in his spirit. Excuse me, I'm going to cough which is real awkward for all. And so my invitation for you this morning, in really what in a lot of ways is a very simple message, that Jephthah and all these judges are bad, Jesus is good, okay? That's all, if you get anything out of today, that's all I'm saying, really. Um... But the invitation we have in Jesus is to know God and not just know about him and not know his stats, not just know his stats and the facts facts and figures, but to actually know him, to be with him, to enjoy life with him forever as those united to his son and filled by his spirit. That's why we gather here every week, to commune with the God who's given his life for us.
And so as Jordan and the band come and lead us in worship, we invite you to the table, if you'd like, to take the cup and dip it in the, uh, take the bread and dip it in the cup and take it into yourself, receiving Jesus again. In the back of the room at the exit signs, there'll be people that would love to pray with you. If there's a place in your life where you need help trusting God or a request that you'd like to share, some of our elders and other people would love to pray with you. And then we just simply sing and we enjoy and we declare the good news about who God is and what he's done to save us in Christ. And we do it together as a community, as a family that have received this incredible gift of grace. So we stand with me. We'll close in prayer. Father, we're grateful that you have revealed yourself to us ultimately and finally and completely and beautifully in Jesus. And that we're not left guessing and speculating and wondering about who you are and what you're like, but you have shown us and invited us to share life with you forever. And so I pray that this morning as we encounter you in this space, that by your spirit you would reveal to us the false gods that we're prone to worship, the false saviors that we tend to look to for what only you can be and do, the false gospels that we hold to and maybe even preach that oftentimes sound like your kingdom but deny your king. So you and you alone are hope for our lives, hope for the world. And we pray as we encounter you this morning that you would transform us even more to the kind of people you've created and called us to be, people who bear the image of your son, live in the power of your spirit, and invite others home as we seek the good of this city and of this world. You and you alone are our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.